0: To another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. This week, it's just Jeff and I with Dave Pearson, who's Group Sustainable Development Director at Star Refrigeration. Alex was going to join us, but he was too rinsed out. Sleepless night with a noisy child. Anyway, Dave is a returning guest. I'd well recommend going back to the first episode we had him on, which is, I think it's from before. Alex and I joined the podcast back in like September, October 2021. None of that matters. He's a great guest. He's vastly experienced. And we talked a lot about heat networks, mainly about the viability of them. So looking at how as a technology, they're increasingly viable within Britain and Ireland. Increasingly, they make sense. And rather than just talk about something that would be a great idea, We actually talked about how to spot an opportunity. You know, environmentally, what are the right conditions for installing a heat network? So any of you out there who are working on developments, planning or design, how you can look at a a set of circumstances and think, oh, maybe. And we also talked about the things that will need to change. So the things we'll need to build into these sorts of plans, the infrastructure we need to support them. He's a brilliant speaker. Some of you probably already know that. We would like to have him back. No doubt, we'll have him back again. Um, yeah, so I'll just let you listen to it. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoy it. Oh man, um, do you two... Oh, Oh yeah, you two have met before, haven't you? We have,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, good while ago. Uh, we've just written about some of your work, Dave. And um, I know you were interviewed. You were interviewed by Lenny for a piece on RCH in, River Clyde uh, Holmes. Yes, uh, he, I presume. Uh, I don't. I don't tend to like acronyms. So Dan is just trying to kind of nitpick. Probably, I presume you would know that.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, I'm not nitpicking. It's because we we may well use this in the recording. Oh, right, we might.
1: Okay, yeah, that's a point.
0: Yeah. We always do. Yeah. yeah. Fuck's sake, Jeff.
1: <laughs> Basically. Um,
0: 110 Lenny- episodes in and we're still neither in like this. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. So anyway, so um, uh, Lenny uh, Antonelli uh, wrote a piece for us on River Clyde Holmes for the new issue of Passive Plus, which is just out now. It's online yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, due back from the printers um, imminently. In fact, I'm, I've just landed back in the country from uh, from holiday. Um, so um, I'm still kind of a bit, a bit discombobulated trying to, trying to know the lay of the land. But uh, we... We do case studies, um, on buildings normally, but in this case, I recognize the significance of what Duncan and Richard and his colleagues at River Clyde Homes were trying to do. Uh, this pragmatic, but radical approach to try and kind of deliver decarbonization and affordable energy for, for vulnerable people. And uh I th- I think it has enormous potential. And I'm delighted, Dave, that you were uh, you're you're part of that story and that you know the the early signs seem to be it 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 just looks like a really good blueprint that they've come up with.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I really like the, the stuff outside of the, the sort of homes heating. But as we've got the whole thing about creating agriculture opportunities and the job opportunities and yeah, you know, it just really struck me as what we've got to do is Join up, join up the challenges to find the solution.
0: That's sustainability, isn't it? Well, this like, is... Yeah. It's economic sustainability. Like it's yeah. uh, the sustainability of communities. Like we've all seen them ripped apart by a lack of investment where they just become places for people to live or places for people to exist, not to live. This is it, yeah, exactly. Now, when well, we should start out, Dave, by clarifying...
1: Who who you are and who you represent? Because Star Refrigeration is the the main brand I see, but I see also Star Renewables. So can you kind of explain, uh, you know, who you are, how long you've been at this, um, and uh, and and what the direction that the business is going in? You know, uh, which might explain something to do with that, that naming, I guess. You know,
2: sure. Um, so Star Refrigeration is the original business. It was founded in 1970. Um, there was a, another Glasgow-based uh, business called Sterns that uh, was bought over and closed down. So a lot of guys found themselves needing a, another job and they were at the right age, went off and set up Star Refrigeration. And it was principally cooling for fish, milk, and mainly foodstuffs was the, the primary activity. And it sure enough, all, all their, their other colleagues then Lost their jobs, and as they grew, they had a ready access to the talent. So they grew quite quickly, through till about 1980. Obviously, dark times, uh, working by candlelight in the 70s, and the oil crisis, and you know, um, mixed mixed mode working back in those days. How how uh, <laughs> insightful, because um, you weren't allowed to travel, and if your number plate didn't uh, match up with who was doing what that week. So, um, so they got to the 1980s, and then. Um, added a a strand which again is very topical which was basically remote monitoring Um, not quite as as grandiose as a digital twin but uh, we were the first people to do a microprocessor control of a refrigeration system that had a modem installed in it uh, (laughs) back in the day that meant that you instead of getting a phone call from the night watchman saying there's an alarm sounding I don't know what it is the engineers would get a message on their on their house phone as it would have been in those days saying or a pager i guess um there's something wrong with the oil temperature or we' you know maybe maybe the cold store is slightly too warm and they could attend site a little bit uh, uh, for forewarned of what the, the challenge they might face so that grew us into a, a national business because that was quite clearly something that people wanted. When was Eagle this?
1: When, when did that happen, Dave? Uh, that would be
2: about 1982, I think. No way. Uh, so, yeah, back in the days of uh, ZX Spectrum and BBC Micros and these sort of things. But we had to make our own uh, PLC at the time, uh, which we called Telstar. So uh, that, that was a big, big moment in the history. All the way through this, there was always an observation of um, CFCs being bad. Basically, and ammonia as the principal working fluid that's you know, Celtic
1: Football Club now,
2: yeah. You know? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Do uh, you know, that's never dawned on me before. Um, no, so uh, chlorofluorocarbons, uh, to, to be more precise, seems we're getting away with acronyms. <laughs> um, so we we uh, we did, did that through the 80s, then it got to the 90s and, and continued growth. And the other thing that kind of was going on. Uh, at the time, was a lot of businesses were were de-skilling from within, so um, outsourcing of engineering skills to specialists. And you know, prior to that, most people would look after their own systems. But the the maintenance part of the business grew quite, quite quickly from the from the eighties to the nineties. And then round about sort of mid nineties, we we kind of knew we had to take a step change again and invested in the factory. Um, started thinking about. Um, more more packaged solutions um, to to allow other people to get into the refrigeration piece. Um, the story of the of the of the noughties so year year uh, two thousand three two thousand four was to think a little bit more about added extra stuff. So we got into um, freezing uh, machines. We actually bought a company uh, coincidentally called Star Frost uh, down in. Um, in East Anglia their their history a bit younger than ours by about 20 years I think but their history was pea freezing and so they'd grown their business and basically now in all the food factories you can imagine there'll be a conveyor belt whether it's Cornish pasties or trays of mash for Marks and Spencers or chocolate puddings or or whatever the stuff's mass produced it goes down a conveyor belt but has to be cooled or or frozen to be to be packaged and then sent sent to the shops. So that that was a big, a big move as well that we we got into that. But the biggest change, and that's the bit that brings us to today, was kind of late late noughties, two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. We were feeling the UK was a little bit small and getting small. It's quite quite an easy place for international companies to come to because English is probably a second language. Um, there's we some of us struggle with English. Um, so we, uh, we saw this opportunity to, to think about heating and heat pumps, which, of course, weren't a new idea uh, dating back to 1852 and Lord Kelvin giving a, a, a lecture in Glasgow and, and others of his time. But they hadn't really taken off, and, and there was lots of reasons for that. But we, we uh, saw an opportunity and then by complete chance won a project in Norway for district heating and district heating was completely unknown to me I've I've lived most of my life in in uh, in the UK with a gas boiler so district heating what was that quite literally I must have said that what is it and the crazy idea that these guys had which of course turned out not to be crazy was to suck heat out of a fjord in Norway and so we we were able to offer that and it was our expertise Using natural working fluids that gave us that that moment, the client didn't w- wish to pursue synthetic working fluids anymore because of the the, uh, the problems with global warming that were being being noticed. Um, the, the the working fluid at the time it's still still quite commonly used, but R134a they all have numbers all we in with R, but R134a very commonly used uh, most carrier air conditioning for example. It's 1,430 times as potent as carbon dioxide as a global warming gas, and expected to contribute round about half a degree of uh, global warming just in its in, in the, the whole family of of uh, synthetic working fluids. So the client had said to us basically, could you do a heat pump with ammonia but at 90 degrees, and it had never been done before. Um, we we found the supply chain capable of doing that. We delivered it, and it's still the largest. 90-degree ammonia heat pump from a fjord. You've got to pick your marketing strands so you're number one in, in some <laughs> But uh, It's not the only ammonia heat pump, and it's not the only heat pump from ammonia, and it's probably not the only heat pump at 90 degrees, but it's the only one using ammonia at 90 degrees from a fjord in the town of Drammen uh, in Norway. <laughs> and uh, that, A, blew our minds, and B, B changed our world, um, but not nearly as as fast as we thought it would. Because basically at the time, the UK government had legislated with the Climate Change Act that uh, we shall at some point going forwards, stop burning gas for heating because it's, it's a major part of the numbers. The amazing thing to me was people always talked about wind and electricity and nuclear and biomass and all sorts of stuff, but they never quite nailed down the reality that We've got ourselves in this predicament because we're burning stuff. The mm. way we're going to get out of it is not finding different stuff or a different way to burn stuff. It's about not burning stuff unless right. we absolutely have to. It doesn't feel very 21st
1: century either, does it? Like setting things on fire to uh, to, yeah. uh, to to you to know, make bang, things
2: bang your chest and you know, wave your wave your stick and uh, you know so we 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 definitely have this uh sort of mental tattoo of don't burn stuff and that sets sets the thing. So that's along that path is where Star Renewable Energy came about because turning up to district heating companies who are all very um, well established and sophisticated and saying, I'd like to talk about your heating, please. I'm from refrigeration. So Star Renewable Energy was born. We also we also coined a a brand name, which was neat pumps. So rather than heat pumps, our heat pumps use natural working fluid. So it's an N rather than an H. I don't know it kind of stuck and it's always good if you're in the google searches if uh, nobody else uses that name because you it's quite easy to be at the top of the list so neat pumps and star renewable energy were born uh, somewhere in that journey it's gosh it's been 14 years and i kind of pretty much forget what i had for breakfast yesterday uh so it's uh it's taken a while but we're, we're there and then um, the the progress in the market continues that there's now a very strong Definition of what the future will look like, uh, not just in the UK but around the world, that heating has to come from renewable and sustainable sources. And so, I think we we've made the right choice, but it's not easy by a long shot. It's um, it's slow going still.
1: And uh, you're doing um, uh, low low global warming potential refrigerants as as the rule rather than the exception. Are you or what?
2: I. Uh, there haven't been very many heat pumps. It's always important to mention that. So I can't say of the hundred that we've done, ninety-eight percent. But all the big ones that we've done have used um, ammonia as a working fluid. Um, we have used carbon dioxide for some very small heat pumps that we did. Okay, a, a range that never really took off. We still, we still have um, some some knowledge and and um, you know ability to use the the synthetic working fluids. And I think it's going to be quite interesting. It's not a topic of today, but heat pumps are moving into the above 90 degree territory. So 160 degrees or something like that. I Mm. would far rather use a synthetic working fluid in a professional and considered manner Mm. than burn gas to make steam at 160 degrees. Um, But the next step would be to do the same output, but not be using synthetic working fluids and be using... Natural working fluids. They'll probably be hydrocarbons. Um, butane and, and pentane are very good working fluids at these much much higher temperatures. But uh, if the, if there's if there's an emphasis, it's definitely natural working fluids. Okay. For many reasons, but they also they use less electricity, so that's that's good for the clients. Yeah,
1: for sure. And the heat pumps that you're doing, are
2: you you're manufacturing them yourselves? Yeah, most of them. Sometimes sometimes we buy from specialist partners. P- Uh, principally the smaller ones but the the big stuff we manufacture in glasgow using a whole bunch of bought-in components
1: it's wonderful to see capitalizing on industry and you know in a famous industrial kind of hub but but in a a kind of a in the right direction you know in terms of the 21st century kind of saving the world kind of direction
0: you know well i mean this is this is part of well, I mean, this is specifically why we asked you to join us again, because uh, you are a returning guest as well, Dave. Like, uh, that's where you two perhaps met before. I think in our end, towards the end of 2021, mm-hmm. at some point. Or maybe before that, in fact. Yeah, was there, it? I think it was early. It was, was uh, an early one. Was It during yeah. COP26. It was that kind of time, anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, we had a conversation the other week about how heat networks, driven by heat pumps in particular, are an increasingly viable solution. There is a preponderance like in this trade to fixate on one thing being the answer to all our problems, and that's resolutely horseshit, because you can't. You increase demand with a finite supply. You can't deliver on it. All of a sudden, it's unsustainable. And heat networks, just like heat pumps aren't the only solution. Like they uh, you know, individualized solutions. But something I've only become aware of more recently or the specifics around it. Home heat pumps, they're brilliant. However, they become potentially less viable the more you scale them on an individual basis because they are resource heavy. There are more pollutants as we've just been describing. There's more impact in terms of, Infrastructure, individualized maintenance. There's more fellows driving around to fix them. All, all the the myriad little tiny things will have a measurable impact. Where, if you do a heat network, where such a thing is viable, just as we talked about with River Clyde Homes in Greenock, or the the work that you're doing in Glasgow itself, there's the church and a new development. Like, it's quite amazing, like that this. It is an old technology, which seems to be coming of age.
2: It, it, it's, a, it's a really funny thing because people talk about different types of heat pumps all the time. Is it ground source? Is it air source? And, the, and they're absolutely right. They both exist. What they never really seem to remember is a heat pump doesn't make heat. It, it harvests it from somewhere else. And if you've got a, a modest-sized house, you can harvest that heat from fresh air. Right. It's just it's just the science of, of of the device. Equally, if you've got a modest sized building, you can drill a hole in the ground and harvest heat out the ground. And you get and it's always good to put a number on things because I really don't like these big, small. So here, here's the number. I've got a borehole in my house. I can get about 10 kilowatts of heat capacity out that borehole. It's relatively deep. However, if I was in a block of flats that needed six times as much heat, for example, I would need quite a lot of boreholes to get the same quantity of heat out of the ground. And it's not that it's impossible, but when you've then got another block of flats and another block of flats and another block of flats and a school and a hospital or an office building or the town hall or whatever, you get to the point where you just physically couldn't put enough holes in the ground to get the heat. So you've got to get the heat from somewhere else, and that's where, where district heating is is really finding its place because unlike individual heat pumps which collect the heat from their cuboid of space in, in the universe, a district heating network lets you get heat from somewhere else and bring it into the place where you need it. Now, the bit that always gets forgotten still is people talk about individual heat pumps or heat networks. And they they then don't make the connection that heat networks could be getting their heat from a big heat pump. They seem to assume that heat networks mean burn something somewhere else. And I'm not totally against energy from waste. It's certainly better than landfill. You've got to take it in the context of let's make less, let's reuse it better. Let's reprocess it better. You, you don't jump to let's set fire to it just as a step one. So you've got to make the heat for the heat networks in a clean way as well because there's no, you know, I'm going to say something, it's going to sound really obvious, but it'd be pretty poor to have a district heating system and everyone going, wait, we've got district heating, and you've got a big coal-fired boiler at the far end of it. That would be pretty rubbish. So you've got to make the heat cleanly and get it from A to B as effectively as you possibly can. And that's that's where I think what we'll see, if you if you take all of the, the trends that are going on, you either have individual heat pumps or you have big heat pumps with district heating. And that's why, and I've, I've gone in print saying this, there's not a single building in the UK that you couldn't heat with a heat pump. Some will be easier, some will be harder, and some will need a district heating network to create a, a cluster of demand that works with, a big river source heat pump
1: that's a very interesting point as well dave actually because um, i'm putting my other hat on as the chair of the heat pump association of ireland now um one of the the gripes that some of the sorry there's there's people hammering in the background here um sorry we can't hear it okay good uh, one of the gripes that um that um that's some of our members would say is that they've worked on some with well, some members who would have worked on Oh, period buildings where they put ground source heat pumps in for instance or large enough heat pumps basically with a, with a large enough heat source um and uh they're able to, to heat the building you know to a, to a comfortable temperature and reduce the energy bills compared to whatever oil boiler people are on without really being able to do that much to the fabric um i'd like to really tease this out more you know um, and and to kind of um uh, pick apart the notion that, that you know, well, this building isn't suitable for a heat pump um, because it, you can't insulate it, for instance. So this is something you're already wrestling with too, evidently.
2: Uh, yeah, you know, and, and inspired perhaps by George Orwell on this famous quote of all all, all buildings were created equal, but some are more equal than others, or, or animals as it was in his case in Animal Farm. I think, you know, it, it's, it's equally commonsensical to say, It's easier to heat some buildings with a gas boiler than it is to heat others with a gas boiler. The really interesting thing about heat pumps is if you do make the fabric better, you don't just do one thing, you do a second thing. The first thing you do is you need less heat because you're leaking less heat out. But the second thing is you're able to use the existing infrastructure in the building at a lower temperature. And that makes a heat pump better because... And I I don't know the exact numbers for a domestic heat pump, but certainly for a larger heat pump, every degree that you can lower the flow temperature down needs one and a half percent less energy. So yes, you can still heat a building that used to be gas boilers with water flowing around the radiators at 60 degrees. But if you can do it at 50 degrees, you'll save 15 percent of the energy cost. If you can do it at 40 degrees, you'll save another 15 percent. So definitely makes sense to make buildings better. However and this is where some of the jargon sometimes needs updated, there's definitely jargon of fabric first, i.e. do all the fabric and then <laughs> add a heat pump. And I think that's quite damaging because it basically gives the impression that you shouldn't think about switching fuel source until everything is perfect. And there is no such thing as perfect. It's, it's um, you know, it takes, t- takes, uh, it takes a lot to get there and it's never achieved. So... I think we've got to be more pragmatic about it and say, get it as good as you can, but get into the different source of heat as quick as you can. Yeah, yeah. we need to
1: move beyond slogans or, or towards more nuanced slogans, you
0: know? I think that's part of, the, part of that issue is the culture, like the green building culture, the energy efficiency cultures, like they've been segregated from mainstream culture, like just mainstream building, like for a long time. And so there are degrees of dogma and zealotry that have kept those cultures alive. And now it's opening up into this sort of mass opportunity. Like I keep talking to people. So I've been speaking with Octopus Energy about their uh, zero bill homes. I met some other guys who are working on the River Clyde Home Project yesterday, uh, Discreet Heat, who we might be getting them on the podcast uh, in the near future, where they, they, Instead of underfloor heating, they use uh, skirting board heating systems, which have a similar impact in terms of the fabric. But what's common amongst all of these people is you don't need to reach Passive House standard. You just need to do an awful lot better. And you don't necessarily need to do as much as would be required of a deep retrofit, a pure deep retrofit, to make that big impact. It's always the, the marginal gains once you get to the last few degrees that cost the most. So in terms of resource intensity, we beggar it. Right, yeah, the caveat
1: I would add is that if it's like a, a blank piece of paper, if it's like a new build, you should always aim as close as you can to pass the so There's not really much of an excuse there, right? Exactly, um,
0: yeah.
1: Um, but when we're dealing with uh existing buildings and all of the restrictions of one kind or another that that can bring, that's where pragmatism uh, is really required. You know, passive house actually is a pragmatic solution, I would argue, in the case of New builds, Um uh, uh that point is often often lost, but um we need to be able to try and try and reconcile uh, have a bit of flexibility and a and uh still a building physics based approach with flexibility built into it to to tackling existing buildings, you know.
2: Yeah I think I think an interesting thing sticking with the fabric pieces people always talk about insulation as the thing you have to achieve. You've got to insulate your buildings better, but actually draft proofing is as important, if not more important. And that brings on a, a, a second area, which I think needs a lot more talent applied to it, which is how to um, effectively ventilate a building that's become quite hermetically sealed because yeah. you cannot just wrap the whole thing in cling film, which makes it dead easy to to heat. But it doesn't breathe, and the people do breathe and then they won't breathe. So you've got you've got to think about forced and sensible ventilation. And that's a whole area that just hasn't come into this very much. And efe- effectively it's I think it, I think to a certain extent it's undermining the progress that there's not enough chat around um forced ventilation and, and heat recovery from forced ventilation, obviously.
1: Well, yeah, non-random ventilation
2: I would describe it as.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well,
2: Um,
0: like your point about building physics, Jeff, uh, like it's the whole bloody thing is about systems design. Yeah. Like that's, that's the thing that it is a, a a repetitive theme that we keep coming up against. And the, the fact that there are too few people actually thinking in those terms, it is second nature to the passive house community already. But they need to get so, out there
1: and infect the water, the wider community, that kind of way of
0: thinking. Well, you know, this um, is it. Like the, the 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 wider building community, the architectural, building design community first, need to be inculcated in it, which is why it was really heartening to hear what Peter Warm and Sally Godbrod say about getting building physics onto a few of the architectural courses around the place, like for master's degrees. So you're at least giving people the wherewithal to be able to start thinking in the right terms rather than just Putting more buildings up, like design them in the right way. Now on that
1: point about um um about this kind of skirting board heaters that you're talking about, uh, I wanted to link that to the point Dave made about draft proofing because the first thing that occurs to me with something like that, we very often hear when people are uh, when you when you if you've got a leaky building, one of the one of the worst areas is going to be around the skirting boards, often, right? um so, skirting board heating without addressing air tightness at that particular junction is going to be, I would have thought, uh, I don't know what the consequences would be, but it doesn't seem like a terribly smart thing to me.
0: Presumably that would be part of the installation process. Well,
1: you'd say so, but let's see what they have to say, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it feels like this is more viable, but it's not more viable. Heat networks as a solution are increasingly viable, but they're not viable in the same way that gas was. We're not just replacing a massive infrastructure wholesale with a new massive infrastructure wholesale. But am I right in assuming that these need to be localised or regionalized solutions spread about the place rather than just ripping out the gas pipes pipes and replacing them with hydrogen? That appears to be a, a very commonly mooted solution to our woes.
2: You had to mention the H word, didn't you? <laughs> um we'll, we'll, we'll rewind back from that and stick, stick with district heating and how it will come to pass. It absolutely needs somebody to have enough confidence that people will buy enough heat from the district heating network to make it viable. It's no different to... Now, if, you, if you open a pizza shop at the top of Ben Nevis, I suspect you'll go out of business because there won't be enough business to keep you in business. So district heating is no different. You have to have enough certainty that there's enough demand for your product. And that's not like a, not likely to happen in a unregulated, unmotivated market. I think, and, and bear in mind that just to take it back again, district heating is most likely to be in areas of quite concentrated demand, so that will be city centres mainly, or large communities where there's a a bit of a block action, i.e. RSLs, registered social landlords and and community housing. But you've got to have enough capacity to make it worth somebody. I don't don't get into the, the sort of Politics of who's going to pay for all this. Um, I don't think money is a barrier because the pension funds will pay for it if you offer them a, a decent enough return on investment. Mark Carney said as much uh, at COP26. Trillions of dollars of investment waiting for 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 a home basically. So whether it's paid for with borrowing from cities or local authorities or RSLs or private investors, it doesn't really doesn't really bother me. Somebody has to have enough confidence, there'll be enough heat demand that they will justify their investment. The second bit is you can't, you can't expect people to buy heat from district heating unless you tell them what price it's going to be. Mm. And we need two things in, a, in, a, in an energy world that we've not had. The first is, well, sorry, we've had one of them, actually. You need, you need a, a low enough price. And gas has actually been quite cheap relative to, to think of the complexity of it, it's really pretty remarkable. And testament to the gas industry, they deserve Prior all the respect of respect for where they've got us to. Yeah. The second bit though is the bit that if we're going to change from gas to district heating, we've got we've got to have a much better degree of stability of price. So that it's not up and down every year because Somebody's caught a cold in, in whatever part of the world, and and decided that they're in a bad mood. So we've got we've got to have price stability. And the really interesting thing about heat pumps and people take it as a weakness, but I take it as a strength is that they need electricity to make them run. That's that's the way a heat pump works. The, the electricity makes the motor sp- spin, which turns the compressor that squashes the gas that causes it to heat up. It's it's high school physics. Uh, squash squash a gas, it heats up, and that's that's how we harness that. But the really interesting thing that's happening in the electricity market is there's a massive trend towards wind-generated electricity because it's it's the cheapest form of making electricity when it's when the wind is blowing. And you have to throw in that caveat because it doesn't always blow. But actually, it doesn't. It's not blowing for quite a short period of the time over the course of a, a calendar year. It's about uh, less than 500 hours. There'd be there'd be absolutely nothing. Now, the way that wind farms are being built is an investor has said, I will build this thing if I'm guaranteed a price for the electricity, and actually what's happened is the price for that electricity in the open market has risen above where the price that they want is. Now, it's under a little bit of pressure due to the the inflation in manufacturing that's happened, but the contracts for difference model is basically a promise from government that if you build a wind farm, you'll get... And the auctions were won at round about 3.7 pence per kilowatt hour of outputted electricity, or £37 per megawatt hour. So 3.7 pence is actually quite a low cost for electricity. It's about a third of the cost of building new nuclear. Noting again, of course, that one is very stable and flat in its output, and the other is up and down a bit. But we can cope with up and down a bit if we start creating consumers that are up and down a wee bit. and This comes back to the draft proofing comment. The demand of heat for any property or building will be higher when it's windier because that's what strips away the heat, either through drafts or the leakage of heat gets stripped away from the outside of the building and therefore more heat has to leak through because there's a temperature difference. So what you've got is a a happy coincidence where when it's windier, your electricity is cheaper, but it's when you need most heat. So join the dots. Why not, instead of feeding electricity into the grid and watch it vanish down the wires, why not have a much closer relationship with the generation of wind and the demand for heat pumps? And that, that gets you much closer to something where you can say, okay, we'll not get it for 3.7 pence. We'll have to pay some transmission costs, blah, blah, blah. But let's just say that when it's windy, you can have heat electricity, sorry, from a wind farm for 6 pence per kilowatt hour. That would seem to be enough of a margin to get it from A to B, particularly if A isn't very far away from B. And thinking in a Glasgow context, Whiteley's Wind Farm is less than 10 miles from the centre of Glasgow. Mm. That is not very far in terms of cables. So if we can buy the electricity for six pence and we've got a good enough heat pump at high enough temperatures, we'd probably get an efficiency of about three. It might be slightly better than that. So we'll make heat for two pence. You've then got all the infrastructure to pay back of district heating, and that costs quite a lot of money as well, but the analysis that we did in a, in a bit of work that's published under um, Heat Vision 2030 basically said if you can buy electricity for six pence, you can sell heat for sixpence. And the ratio of three to one covers the cost of building all, all the pipes. So now what you can say to these communities that are being clustered, whether commercial communities or public sector communities or housing communities, say how do you fancy buying your heat from us for six pence per kilowatt hour, which is about the cost of gas at the moment. It's maybe not as cheap as gas was, but we've got to, got to be somewhat pragmatic. I think now it. is a
1: good time for that conversation, frankly, You know, given where prices what are. It. Yeah.
2: So how do you fancy buying it for six pence? Oh, and by the way, see our deal for electricity. That's a 20-year deal, so it's only going to go up by inflation. It's not going to go up and down. That, that is so important.
1: I, th- I think it, this is an area where it's really important that we put manners on it and that we put structure in place uh, from a, a regulatory perspective, just just in terms of giving people certainty. Um, because I've seen here in Ireland, for, even for where I am, um, uh, with a, a, a not, not district heating but a communal heating system um, in a, a apartment building with nearly two hundred apartment building, nearly two hundred apartments in it how much the price of heat has, has oscillated, uh, because we don't have regulations in place here. Um, you know, how much it's, it's jumped up. Basically it's come down a bit now, but we were paying a very high cost, um, uh, you know, far ahead of anything that, that we were seeing in terms of price rises, r- rises on gas, for instance, you know,
0: um, that's really interesting in terms of developing a fairer pricing mechanism. Because the numbers that you've said counterintuitively intuitively stack up because of the nature of heat pump, heat production. And the bit that you just dropped in at the end, tying the price of uh, your heat and energy to inflation rather than it being an intrinsic uh, driver of inflation, which is what we're suffering right now. You know, the perceived Changing the cost of energy. It was the perceived cost. It wasn't necessarily the actual cost. It was a big fuck up of opportunity cost as well, particularly in the UK. Like that's been used as an excuse to drive up prices everywhere. And if you're producing heat in this manner for people and electricity in this manner to create the heat, well, you're not going to be driving inflation in the same way. Like it just can't happen. Unless something fundamentally goes wrong, like a new apocalyptic outcome of climate change. I mean, this is part of
1: an industrial strategy, too, though, because what about, um, you know, businesses need this kind of certainty. If you're going to invest in any kind of a high energy um, demand uh, manufacturing industry, whatever it might be, um, you know, uh, you're you're going to be operating in an an area where uh, energy costs are going to be a big chunk. Uh, of your of your cost base, um, yeah. so having uh, we've seen this. I remember years ago, right, writing in in the, the progenitor depositors plus constructor. I had a piece an Austrian town called Gussing, um, which is uh, which is a town that was in kind of terminal decline, and they they uh, rebuilt themselves on an Unfortunately, burning based uh, district heating system because they're surrounded by biomass, so it was biomass based, and um, um, but th- that. Energy policy and district heating policy that they that they brought in was credited with transforming the town, uh, the history of the town, and bringing in you know uh, college leaving people, you know uh, young people coming back into the town, industry coming to the town because they could guarantee low energy prices. Um, so uh, I, I presume that, I presume that part of your thinking too, Dave.
2: Yeah, very much so, and 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 also just we, we briefly skirted through something that I think is really important to know is the retail price index of or what people are subjected to in terms of inflation. It's built partly on fuel costs. It's built partly on stuff they buy, and and you kind of said as much as this. So I'm really just teasing out what you said. The stuff you buy is such a large energy component that if that is going through the roof in terms of its cost, it's got a double energy's got a double input to the inflationary cost. And I think this the sadness for me over the last two years that we watched this is we haven't reacted quickly enough to decouple the cost of electricity from the cost of gas because the two are increasingly unrelated. Albeit, again, when it's not windy, you need to burn gas to bridge the gap. Fine, I accept that. But it doesn't happen as often. But also, less and less of the net output is from gas and therefore having all your electricity go up because gas prices going up and down, that's gone into the cost of a, a a pint of milk or a loaf of bread or a you know, we, we do all the a lot I think it's all certainly a lot of the cooling for Guinness, you know. So it's, it's it features all the way through the economy that this energy tail is wagging the dog and it's extremely damaging because it then costs society a huge amount of taxation to deal with it, because we're then going to do some sort of short-term interventions to try and paper over the cracks. Meanwhile, you know, when the price of electricity or gas has gone up, somebody has been been making a bit of a killing off it. Um, oh. you know, and then we go and we create more taxation to try and recoup some of that. It's just incredibly complicated. If we just try to separate ourselves from, from uh, the cost of gas, I think things would be a lot easier. But one of the things that I've loved about the stories that you've told me and the the the
0: plans at River Clyde Homes is that they're not just doing it for housing, like it's they're thinking bigger than that and broader. Like in terms of the energy crisis, small businesses have been absolutely ruined by this, often because of the the cost of heating premises and energy use. Uh, Like it's not just one or the other but it's rendered loads of them untenable. So to your point, like the compound effects of extracting that profit or that cost unreasonably and unnecessarily, like that's put loads of businesses to the wall, which means you've sucked all that money out of the economy, which means you've taken uh, people's jobs away, which sucks more uh, money out of the economy. So you have like this negative multiplier effect. But with a district heating system, you get more people to buy in, more people to pay in. You're able to distribute more if you find the right circumstances. Like I'm trying to talk to people in Preston about this after their great retrofit catastrophe and the adoption of the Preston model as a means of uh, creating fiscal multipliers within a local community, buy locally, source locally, supply locally, keep the money circulating. Preston's got a fair old river running through it or right by it. And friend of the show, ECD, have set up an office there uh, recently. Like, man, a place like that has got to be ripe for addressing, using this sort of a system. And I I just mentioned Preston because it's front of mind because I was literally talking with Jeff about it before we started recording. But there's loads of places like that. Like, you know, most rivers have a – most significant towns have a river – Because that's how the Vikings got about the place, isn't it?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, long before Freddie Mercury sang sang about fat-bottom girl, the Vikings were singing about flat-bottom boats. So, (laughs) um, yeah, you know, I I don't know the stats stats for other parts of the world. Um, Scotland, 80% of the heat demand is within a 1,000 metres of open water. So it's very big and it's very scalable. There will be bits that are less proximate to that. You know, Livingston in the centre of Scotland, um, and that's the places where we might have to do something a little bit more adventurous, like drilling a hole in the ground to try and find water for mine workings, for example, but if you're next to something big and blue, that, that is the thing to aim for, because it's dead easy. Um, Jaring, I'm sure the guy won't mind me mentioning it, but there's, there's some really growing interest in Kakenzie Power Station, which has been shut down it's to the, the east of Edinburgh, and it's a site that used to be a coal-fired power station It's now not. But it's the site where some of the big wind farm companies are planning to bring the electricity onshore. So they'll need big transformers to be built. Now, in order to make district heating work, we've been back around this, but just to 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 clarify, you need some space. You need you need a heat source, which is the sea, but you need that electricity as well. And if you've got those three things together, you can start making heat at a, a a viable price, you then need the heat network to get it from A to B and you need the customers to buy it from, from the heat network. But Kakenzie still has the, the water piping infrastructure to pump water from the seed. Not that that's desperately difficult to do, but it's got this coincidence of all these different features. So you could, in theory, heat all of Edinburgh with a heat network that got its heat from Kakenzie. And people then said to me, well, but yeah, but you could get heat from, the, from Leith which is actually closer to Edinburgh, or down at Granton? Yeah, you can, and maybe you need to do both. But the point is that if you don't have this electricity connection, it's going to be really difficult to make attractive heat somewhere like Preston, if they they, they might the river. But we really need to think about an electricity strategy for the for the country or whichever all countries. You know, um, Ireland's doing some some great great stuff than this as well, Jeff, and I think probably going to do a much better job um, because there's just going to be a massive push for wind. But I hope the district heating concept keeps up and stays up and actually influences the, the grid piece. If I've got a frustration with the market at the moment, this is an energy market. The electricity guys don't really see that heat has anything to do with them. They think that they're going to sell their electricity to the grid and they'll get paid this guaranteed thing and everything else is not their problem. I I think we need to create a, a system where we're building wind farms, not in the best place for generating electricity, but the best place for using as much electricity as we can generate. Mm-hmm. And that might mean a suboptimal place as a wind farm, but a better optimal place for or the, the the joined up thinking. It's part
1: of the the issue. There are not a concern about community um, lo- local resistance to to wind farms. You know. Uh.
2: Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I think I think uh, every everybody's got personal economics. They, they have to have to think about that. I think the thing would be if you are happy to have a wind farm within ten miles of your conurbation, the price for electricity will be X. If mm. you don't like that and you wish it to be twenty miles away or forty miles away in the North Sea, then you're going to have to pay for the cable as well, and your price will be X plus.
1: Mm. Those you know? stories need to be told as well, don't they? You
0: know. Um, well, your point, Jeff. The stories, like if I mean, most people don't give a monkey's about uh, pilot, not pylons, uh, windmills, like in their sightline. Like you know, there's the the. The perception of them as the apocryphal carbuncle and then the people who are over the top saying how beautiful they find them. Yeah. I mean they're just bloody windmills. Like yeah. they're of little or no consequence to us. And once they're a part of the landscape, the natural landscape, which referencing the Vikings again, it's not bloody natural, is it? Like there's no trees on it. Like that's <laughs> it's, not natural it's, for a, a it's temperate landscape. Yeah,
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: It was supposed to be a bloody rainforest. Um <laughs> so If people can begin to understand that this will be beneficial to them directly, that, you know, their aesthetic sensibilities will change through exposure. Like, oh man, like people buy in. The problem you've then got is, as we discussed with Kit Knowles the other week, the folk who, it's the planning system then that creates bureaucracy and opportunities for veto, which just make it untenable. And I suppose that ties into the, the unnatural nature of the landscape driven by landowners uh and active enclosure and all those agricultural issues that grew out of it. The, hey, the
2: lot thing do, about right? seeing, seeing wind turbines is when you see them and they're not spinning even although it's windy, that really winds me up. Because that basically speaks to a failing in the in the policy market where mm. we had the potential to make electricity, but we just couldn't work out how to get it to people that would be Happy to turn up, you know, charging their cars or running their heat pumps a little bit harder, or 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 whatever else. I do wonder how flexible we'll have to be in society going forwards. I'm minded to think of um, the, old, the old cartoon from my childhood, Windy Miller, who was, who was uh, a windmill uh, operator. Uh, he he absolutely certainly will not have been uh, milling grain if it wasn't windy. I'm not sure what Windy Miller went to do when it wasn't windy maybe it was just miller but um we 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 i hope don't end up having to ask people to adjust their their, their lifestyle too much because of this because i think the engineering should now be good enough that we can smooth out the peaks and troughs but we're miles away from the 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 the, the optimal beneficial use of these these resources because we've got such a, a, a myopic viewpoint of 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 energy systems that it's just I make electricity, I sell electricity. You've got to think bigger than that. And and I hope the big energy companies waking up and start start getting a wee bit more involved in in the you know proper grid planning. They're massively against a thing called locational marginal pricing, which basically means in a zone and there might be 13 zones in the UK that the price of electricity is allowed to vary. It's not allowed to vary at the moment. It's got to be the same price in Edinburgh as it is in Essex, even if it's really windy in Edinburgh and it's not windy in Essex. And there's some logic for that being right. But what it means is that we're building these assets and not, not harnessing them effectively. And so what then happens also is we have to switch on extra stuff, you know, gas engines to fill in the gaps. What if we just made some hot water yesterday and stored it? You know? This, yeah, is you know, and this
1: is like load shedding. I don't know if you, do you get into any of that at all, Dave? I mean, there's a, a client, new client of ours in the magazine called, uh, wise with W and then two I's, W um, who, uh, kind of building automation company. And they were just, we came across them through Charlie Luxton's pr- project, his own studios. He works with them a lot. Um, and, um, it's just fascinating seeing the, the the functionality they're building into projects like recording studios where they uh, they've identified which loads um have to be kept on in the event of uh, a power cut for instance or indoor the because they're generating energy there too um the pv um and which 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 are sheddable. so you know you might not be able to microwave uh your 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 your, your lunch or whatever um but the band that's in session will will definitely have power for the reporting, you know, um, that kind of way of thinking. And I, I mean, it, there is a risk, of course, with all these things that you end up with like the two speed internet idea that you end up with, 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 uh, with, with poor people kind of being, being sacrificed. Um, but uh, I think that that idea of load shedding and building it in an intelligent way has got to be a part of the solution.
0: Well, one of the things that, like the, we'll have a quick recap at the end about what are the conditions required for like a successful heat network project. But one of the core components is what you alluded to earlier, Dave, like uh, monitoring, like continuous monitoring for optimization. Like I saw just doing a little bit of research, I had a quick look at what you've been posting about recently because you're a good poster. I've really enjoyed like your your blunt and direct candor. <laughs> so um, give him a follow if you're not already connected with him. But you posted about uh, Energy Raven in Cambridge, like uh, a project that they put together whereby the the monitoring revealed an opportunity on a, a, a development, I think it was a residential development, to save it uh, £6,000 a year in cost and, and drop the return temperatures to just 34 degrees. I think it was like a 10 degree drop, thereabouts anyway, just by recognizing two issues or an issue in two apartments that was leading to this, then all of a sudden, by like using less energy and the whole bloody thing cost less, Like you get enough people monitoring that, you roll it out on a macro scale, to your point, Jeff, about the load shedding, then you can begin to think about optimizing use and then helping people to understand how to adapt their behavior in inconsequential ways. Like friend of the show's project, Mike Fell, his uh, Should I Bake Now? What's it called? Have you seen his project? It's It's a, a Twitter, at baking4, the number four, cast. Should I Bake is the project. And it, you just go on there to check whether you should go on to do your baking using an electric oven. Now, it will give you, like, a green or a red and tell you whether you, based on what kind of power is being generated, you know, how much wind or solar is being used.
2: Do you know, a very quick story. I've, I've got a, it's a Nest thermostat that was put in, and it's okay. It lets me do stuff on my phone and stuff. But the thing that really annoyed me was they, they stopped doing this, um what, what's the acronym, TFFI or something like that, That or the, the Internet of Things, I can't remember what it's called. But basically, what you should have been able to do was get a signal from Octopus Energy to your thermostat that automatically turns it up by half a degree because it's really windy and therefore electricity is cheap. But equally, if it's not windy, you should be able to turn the thermostat down a little bit so you're not using it. But they stop stop the interplay and the functionality. I'm sure sure somebody knows a thing that I can uh, use. So I've, I've reverted to doing it sort of, manually a little bit with uh I've, I've changed back again to an agile tariff which is a little bit harder to deal with but it, it was better but we did de- it would be so simple yeah talking about people changing their behavior the rest of my family don't give a monkeys they don't want to change their behavior and that's fine <laughs> all I need is that the thermostat changes its behavior and and we, we we turn up demand a little bit when it's when it's a bit cheaper and we turn it down and it's a bit more expensive but half a degree is a big thing for a heat pump it takes Quite a long time, so you're, you're absorbing more energy from the grid instead of turning the, the wind farms off. But we need to know time.
1: this too, Dave. Like, I mean, um, in the context of refrigeration, uh, a even though okay, they're not massive energy draws, but a, a domestic fridge freezer they don't draw electricity all the time, at, you know, and at the same rate. It, it's it's there's kind of there's there's flexibility. Within there's there's flexi- potential for flexibility within those appliances too, without 100%. anyone knowing any different, right?
2: You you could easily set it up so that freezers didn't run for at least one of the hours between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. and the temperature would hardly change. Fridges is a little bit more different, uh, difficult, but and we're seeing it on a large scale. We're seeing some of our large clients doing this demand side adaptation um but at a domestic level i don't i don't know how you do it because you can't just switch the device off i don't think i think mm-hmm. you, you could do but you probably want something a bit better than just a smart um socket you probably want the device itself that's going to take a a turnover in in, in the kit because you don't want to be scrapping good stuff just to buy something more flexible so you know what, maybe no, we do need to just do that that um it's a great
1: getting parents to get their kids off their devices. <laughs> yeah. You know, I say from personal experience, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right then. So, recognizing that we've we've been on for a while, we should probably think about winding up. So, thinking about it from a listener's perspective, and the folk who might be interested in exploring these issues, like for their own benefit, because we know demand is growing like policy is evolving to points in the right direction. We've got the energy bill that's affecting the whole of the UK uh, in it's third reading now. And that, I made a note of what that's covering. Like some of it's quite interesting and some of it is less so. So heat networks are front and center, energy smart appliances and load control to our immediate point there. Uh, the energy performance of premises Uh, offshore energy production, including environmental protection, was an interesting element, licensing and decommissioning of presumably generators, um, and the civil nuclear sector, including the civil nuclear constabulary, which is a curious thing. The bit that puts fear into me about nuclear is cost-cutting. Like It's astonishing how shite and old the technology and the measures protecting us from the catastrophe that would emanate from any sort of uh, contemporary Chernobyl. Anyway, getting aside from that, the warning signs, however, in the same bill, uh, part of the study is about the the responses uh, about the resilience of the core fuel sector, which you can see in this bloody licensing to extract the, the last gasp, fossil fuels. Industrial carbon capture and storage, that perpetual fig leaf of science fiction. And then, Dave, sorry, hydrogen production and hydrogen grid trials, which we've been presumably delighted to see fail in Whitby Village and the fight being taken harder to Redcar. But there is hope in spite of those big warning signs. And we've got, I think you mentioned to me that uh, local authorities are now obligated to appraise district heating solutions.
2: It's coming very soon,
0: very soon. I mean, those are conditions that mean it's going to become ever more viable, presuming that the 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 energy bill isn't going to be watered down and dissolved into. Yeah, I
1: just like to say, by the way, uh, 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 in the context of you talking about this energy bill, Ireland has just produced um, its uh, national hydrogen strategy, and uh, it's it's a very substantial document and there i i from from my initial uh glance through it i don't think it references dwellings at all
0: oh bold i mean good not bold there's just there's an understanding that it's not it has a role but that's not its role you know you, you can't pretend you can just replace the gas network with a hydrogen network in ireland because you've got so many uh, dwellings that are off that sort well, of. Well, we still have, we still have
1: like you know half the country on the gas network, you know.
0: Uh, yeah. So. All right. So, what are the conditions we need to? How would we spot an opportunity or the conditions that are right for a successful heat network?
2: I, I think you're looking for a, a density of heat demand. So it's not single story buildings, it's not two story buildings, but lots of four story buildings in in a cluster. It can be less dense if, if you've got more density of ownership, i.e. a, a, a landlord, you know, a housing association, that lets you do less dense buildings because you can get more yeses all at the same time. Because um, it's all about, district heating is all about how much heat you sell per kilometre of pipe that you you installed, because one's your cost and one's your, one's your outcome. There's, so you've, you've got to have that heat density, but you've, you've got to have a viable heat source. I hope that the he's work that's being done in Scotland, local heat and energy efficiency strategy, which is what the local authorities are appraising, what's good for district heating, what's not. And they're creating zones Is that they recognise that every zone that should be district heating has to have a heat source in it. You can't just have a zone in the middle of nowhere. You've got to have a heat source. So make the zone a different shape till you get to a bit of water, basically, is is the (laughs) the, the seawater source um, angle to it. You've got to think about the electricity piece. Now, Government legislation might change that. You know, we already have different legislations for energy-intensive industries. So if you're a glass factory, for example, you pay a lot less of the extra charges that are applied in the electricity Bill. A a district heating energy centre with large heat pumps is an energy-intensive industry. It's just that its product doesn't fit the classification. So if we reclassified EIIs to include um, energy centres, then uh, you would immediately see a drop in the cost of the of the electricity. So it's all about heat demand and electricity price. And then you know what do you do next? I think what we have to be v- be very clear on every opportunity is what sort of buildings suit district heating and, and what don't. If people are agitated and anxious about making their own living space decarbonized. If it's an individual dwelling, then they probably need to act by themselves. If it's a flat in a block of flats, they should be writing to their local authority and saying, I really want to decarbonize. Tell me when I'm getting district heating. Who how's that going to happen? And trying to create a groundswell of of um interest. But do you know what? If we if we can only get turnouts at, at elections of Less than 50%, I think it's going to be a while before we get people voting for district heating uh, in, in double digits. Um, so effectively someone is going to have to have enough guts and deep enough pockets to to take a punt and Absolutely. roll out <laughs> the and bring it to everybody's door. Well, I
0: think that's sort of where Rufus, his model for decarbonisation of neighbourhoods sort of marries quite neatly with this and with the... A few other people who we've been talking with, folk who are going to be coming on the podcast. What about your Fairopoly? That that was something you spoke about when you were last on, but I think it's worth revisiting.
2: So that, that was it. And it's, it's it's a short cartoon um, at fairopoly.com. We just did it to try and uh, provoke. But basically it's a it's a tri-party agreement between the city, the buildings, and the developers. And they all have to promise into the middle to do something. So the the city have to promise to effectively manage the system and create a set of rules that A, allow investment and B, don't allow uh, exploitation. The buildings basically just have to promise to buy heat if it's offered to them at the right price. And the developers have to promise that they will take on these licenses, they will build the networks and they will sell the heat at the right price. And it's not, you know, I've said before, I've never had an original thought in my life. Uh, It's just maybe an aggregation of some things I spotted in Norway where the district heating company is a private business, half owned by a utility company, half owned by two bits of the city. One is the pension fund and the other is the city. But basically with quite a strong set of rules. And the rules basically make the whole thing operate progressively and fairly. And it's not that the Commercial companies not making a profit from it. It's not that the the pension fund isn't getting their, I don't know, if they want six percent or seven percent or what what makes them makes them happy in terms of their their ROI, but they're absolutely obligated to roll out the network to people that want it. And they're also absolutely obligated to clean up the network. It, you know, not so long ago it's it was heavily sourcing gas to provide the heat and biomass to provide the heat. They're moving away from both of them. And moving towards heat pumps because it's the it's the it's the cheapest way of doing it, and they're absolutely obligated to operate at a particular price, and I think it is around about six pence uh, per kilowatt hour of heat. And that seems to work for them. So uh, it just seems to me you you need, you need the, the three corners, maybe it was four corners, maybe I'm missing one out. Maybe, maybe the fourth corner is the electricity industry. Maybe they've got a role to play in this. But if you create the right um, investment conditions, investment will happen. And, and so long as it's got enough good rules, it should be a good outcome and people don't get, get ripped off.
0: Yeah. Well, this was Rufus's point about his what he's recognised and why he set up his consultancy, Living Places, is the finance is the easy part. It's yeah. creating the opportunity for the finance. That's the tough bit. Like, you do that, they'll come begging. Hmm. All right, well, now we've solved everything. Um, perhaps it's that's time to say goodbye. Yeah. But... <laughs> um, have you got anything? Is there anything you'd like to uh, draw our attention to or plug? Or have you got anything going on that you want to direct people's attention to? I'll be including the links to things like Fairopoly and Should I Bake and all those things in the the show notes.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think that's clever stuff. I think, I think that there is there is definitely optimism. I sometimes sound a bit like a blunt tool or maybe just a tool um, or a bit (laughs) blunt, which I want one or two or both. There is reason to be optimistic. Um, The first is that the governments generally are pushing people towards zoning in cities to say district heating is the right thing in right places. It's just not ever talked about, but the zoning stuff is happening, just a bit slow, and it needs a little bit of clout So this sort of obligation Piece. They, they need to, you know, step up and take that take that opportunity, make that opportunity happen. The second is the electricity reform is being talked about in the UK. It's under a, the banner of REMA, R E M A. it's the view of electricity market uh, assessments or something. But that is saying we can't get electrification if, electric, if electricity is against decarbonisation. We've got to make electricity for decarbonisation and and step up and that. You know, there's also increasing amounts of investment in grid and in the right sort of generation, but it needs to catalyze around a solution. And at mm. the moment, it's been distracted and, oh, we're doing this, but what about hygiene, or we're doing this or what about, you know, uh, other stuff. We've, we've got to really pick the recipe and then bake the cake as fast as we can. And at the moment, there's a little bit too much uh, fear, uncertainty, and delay. You know around. what?
1: I, I think when we're pitching this to the public, you just focus on the outcome, um, less on even on the heating. It's about guaranteed, affordable, clean heat and power. When you get into the into electricity generation, too, that's that's the message, you know. And simple as that. You
2: know? It's interesting how I occasionally uh, on on business trips take my family. Just you know, make make a trip of it. My kids uh, came across to Norway one time, and I said to my son, who was about twelve at the time, "What do you think of Oslo?" And he said, it smelt really clean. Mm. <laughs> I'm thinking he was going to talk about all the electric cars or the tram system. It smelt really clean. And I think air quality is something that we need to be a bit more objectionable about. And I think the backlash to the low emission zones has been incredible. Mm. It's People are arguing against something that's better for their own lungs. <laughs> it's,
0: just, it's astroturfing. It's not real. Like, People, if they're whipped up by the moronic and venal press of the UK, particularly in England, they'll argue for their own murders soon enough. Like it doesn't take much. <laughs> and well, they, are,
2: they are effectively so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was lovely to see you both. Um Really appreciate the chance to. Uh, thanks for coming morning, on and uh, be a blunt too. Uh, oh so, no, it's so, been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us. All right. Um uh, Thank you for joining us the listener individually and collectively um all the usual things please uh review the show positively five stars nothing else will do not because we are needy uh just because that's all that matters we Uh, are please share it pardon
1: we We are needy though Yeah.
0: yeah yeah that's true i am very fragile if you can share it if you get something out of this you probably know someone else who will too so please share it with them uh, talk to us if you need any help in any of these issues. Anything from messaging to decarbonization and sustainability strategy, product development, like we're helping all sorts of people, with all sorts of things. So either email zero us- ambitions
1: partners now the consultancy. As yeah, got the back of the podcast.
0: Yeah. So you can email us at zap at eiux dot agency or just Jeff at zeroambitions.partners or Dan at Zeroambitions.partners or Alex at Zeroambitions.partners. Passive As plus new issue. Imminent. Subscribe. Out. out. It's with, out.
1: With, with well, it's digitally out and and uh yeah imminent in print. Um, All right,
0: send me send me a link. I'll stick it in the show notes. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Must,
1: homes. Yeah exactly we
0: always forget something. Oh uh, join ACAN join the A C B join the IGBC do you have an association that you could recommend people get in touch with, Dave?
2: Um, none of them are consumer facing, but I, I was going to say something and I forgot earlier that that whole thing, and you'll need to find a link. But check the temperature that your boiler is is flowing at. Get heat pump ready. You don't have to do a heat pump now, but get heat pump ready. Get the temperature of your radiators down a little bit. Get it if you get it below fifty five you're you're ready in that respect if you can get it to 45 even better but 50 would be fabulous so yeah. there's there's some heat geek stuff uh on that amongst other people um so just get ready start getting ready it's it's in your interest you'll save 15 percent over the coming winter in your gas bill um, or if it's a combi boiler That on
0: all right well thank you very much cheers for joining all us right.
2: cheers Goodbye. guys Bye.